everybody, and welcome to another episode of Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What? The podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we are watching 1967's Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? A couple's attitudes are challenged when their daughter introduces them to her African-American fiancé. It's a classic, classic movie. Yeah, a very late stage Hollywood classic, I would say. Um, This is a weird transitional period for movies in general. What do you mean by transitional period? Uh, We get to 1967, and this is when you start to have the change over from big budget musical and set piece style dramas like this Mm -hmm. to more risque and indie-ish features. I mean- Okay, I can see that. And, you know, then we're leading into 68 and 69, and finally we get to Easy Rider, and that kind of blows up the whole thing. Oh, yeah. I forget about Easy Rider. Probably because I haven't seen it, but... Yeah, no, that's one we got to add on here at some point. Yeah, so I've never seen a Catherine Hepburn movie before. You want to know something? Yeah. Pretty sure I haven't either. Like, I think I may have seen one where she's like, a more supporting character. Like, she's like in the background, kind of. Well, she was in like some hallmarky style movies near the end of her career yeah so i but like this is the first one i've seen where it's like full-on like oh this is a katherine hepburn movie and why have we waited so long she's a she's a treasure she's a treasure she's the best part of this movie truth truth that's not to discount some of the other really good performances going on here but by a freaking mile she's better than anyone else on screen. Okay, I'd give it up to Spencer Tracy. Well, we'll we'll talk about him too. So, the budget for this film was $4 million in 1967 money. That's that's pretty good 1967 money. The gross for this film was $56,700,000, and worldwide by 1970, it made a total of $70 million. Well, fuck! This is a gigantic box office success. Yeah. And in fact, it was long thought that African-American stories, that black stories could not Mm -hmm. be told in the South. They were not marketable because racism. Yeah, it's racist down here. This movie performed so well, including in the South, Mm -hmm. that that blew that model entirely out of the water. Because yeah, it did. And Hollywood began producing more and more movies for black audiences across the country. Get your shit together, Hollywood. Well, it's all about money. I mean, I I, that's, that is the one thing that's hard to remember about Hollywood and movies. Mm-hmm. It's always about money and marketing. And when you start to see it through that lens, it's not excusable, but it's totally understandable why you don't get more original things. But like, just look now, we have so much more diverse content is just exploding because people want it they want it and we've been wanting it forever and this isn't a new phenomenon it's just they're finally paying attention to the fact that like oh only white people really love stories about white people <laughs> and i love it i do too at the time of recording this billy eichner has just announced that he is writing and will star in a gay rom-com good I'm so fucking excited yes please i'm so excited let me get your initial thoughts on this movie. I liked it. There were some bits that made me uncomfortable because of how in your face they were with stuff. Like there there was no being delicate when it came to the daughter. And initially it's super cringy. 
But once you get used to the fact that it's there, I kind of appreciated it. No, it's okay. Like, there's, I have to remember this is 1967. And the, the whole point is that they're trying to be in your face with this issue. Because I know at the time, interracial marriage was still legal. It wasn't this also kind of around when the Loving versus Virginia story, like, court thing was happening. You set me up so well. On oh, you're welcome. If I recall correctly, it was only a few days after production wrapped that the Loving decision was actually handed down by the Supreme Court. Awesome. And made interracial marriage legal in all 50 states. Woohoo! But... But that is also why we get lines in the movie like, you know, in in 16 or 17 states, it's illegal to do what you're doing right now. Mm-hmm. Which is part of why they were going to get married overseas. And Kramer, the decision came down and they still hadn't edited this film, so he easily could have cut it out. But he decided to keep it in specifically because in his mind, it didn't matter that that decision came down. There were still going to be holdouts that didn't allow it to go through anyway. Yeah. Because were... the Supreme Court decision did not stop anybody from denying people marriage licenses. Um, which we've seen played out with um, same-sex marriages. With Obergefell, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I think this is an important movie. Agreed. Totally. And I think it's a movie that everybody should see. I just don't know that it's that great a movie. Not that I think it's bad. I agree with you that I like it. Uh-huh. I just think that it's very of its time it, in some ways really just eye-rolling. I agree with those statements. There's just I think the thing that I love is is one of the first conversations that the parents have. The Draytons. The Draytons. When she's talking to Matt, played by Spencer Tracy, and she's like, you know, that girl is exactly how we made her to be. We brought her up to be happy. We brought her up to know that anybody who thought that black people, yellow people, and they go through the whole the whole rainbow, were less than, were wrong. They were in the wrong. But never once did we ever say, don't fall in love with one. Yeah. And that is so telling and right on the nose. Because there is this line that racist people get up to where they're like, I'm fine, they're people, totally. But they need to stick to their own. And that is a sentiment that I have actually heard from members of my family, where it's just like, you know, absolutely, they're, I mean, they're people, of course, we love them. But like, you know, why, why would you have biracial children? Why would you do that? I've actually heard that. And that's so fucked up to me. And so like, that's why I still think this is a very important film that people should see now. I agree. I agree. Be- because those, those sentiments haven't gone anywhere. And, and, and currently now in this climate, they've just, get, they're getting louder. It got passed down directly from the generation that the Draytons are in to the generation mm-hmm. that honestly, our two younger leads are currently in. That yes. generation has inherited an even more false liberal position on yeah. these things. Agreed. Where they will f- they will say, well, I fight for equality. But then when it comes down to the nitty gritty and their own families, they're like, oh, I don't know about this. Yeah, like, I-, I don't want it to affect me. And I don't want it to affect my bottom line. Correct. When it comes to actually having to help people of color. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't. That's not my problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is a very interesting and hardcore movie. It makes some serious wrong swerves. Mm-hmm. Because oh, it is sure. swinging for the fences. True. And so... And, and it is dated. 
So they're they're swinging for things that we probably wouldn't do now. But when they hit, they hit a home run mm-hmm. every time. Yeah. I mean, Matt's speech at the end, um, it's just, it's gold. Yeah. Like, it's perfect. It's, it's played perfectly. It's it maybe a scotch too long, but it's just like, it's perfect. Oh, and Mrs. Prentice's speech to Matt Drayton mm-hmm. is one of the most amazing things I've ever heard. Yep. It's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. All right, the writer of this film was William Rose. Okay. His first writing credit was in 1948. His main credits all came before this. Okay. Including The Lady Killers in 1955. It's mm-hmm. a Mad, 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 Mad World in 1963. Mm. And The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming in 1966. Oh. He only had one produced script after this. I've not seen any of those. Mm. Your thoughts on this script? I mean, I think we've talked a little bit about the dialogue being a little heavy handed in some spots and like maybe indelicate, especially with the daughter. She's horrible. (laughs) The acting is offensively bad. Um, (laughs) Yes. But she's written badly. So it's a thing of white dudes. White dudes should not write romance like. No, just this dude shouldn't. Probably not. Like, there, so, there's some white dudes have done okay. I mean, Shakespeare. Occasionally right. it works, but like, man, a lot of times when a white dude has written a romance movie, we talked about this with Titanic. Oh, yeah. It was like, Jim Cameron should never write a goddamn romance. No, no, it was that problem where we're like, this movie is amazing. We need someone else to write all the dialogue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was the problem. And But here's the thing. She was the only character I felt was really bad. You know, mom and dad are great. Dr. Prentice, pretty good. His parents, not bad. The father, eh, I could take or leave him. The maid, who cares? But the daughter was the re- the one that it was just obnoxiously bad. I feel like there's too much going on in this movie. I almost want this to be a single set piece film mm-hmm. that never leaves that house. Well, it kind of is. It kind of is, but then they leave like... The moments that don't work for me are when they deliver the fucking steaks and we get this weird ass jive scene with the <laughs> white steak delivery guy. When did this turn into a musical? We we had to pause the movie. We were laughing so hard at how ridiculous this scene was. It, and then I and then because of the way the music was, I was like, are we on an Austin Powers film? What is happening? Because I get the statement was, well, the young kids don't care about this. And I was like, you could have done this in a way that wasn't the worst, hackiest looking thing I've ever like, seen in my life. The dude could have been jamming out to the music and bobbing his head in the car. He turns off the car. So the music turns off. He goes to deliver. The The young lady comes up and they flirt a little bit. And that's it. And that's it. The flirting alone it's is enough. the thing that's shocking for most viewers of that film at that time. Yeah, like, and they're both into it. They're both on the younger side. Like, they're both like, oh, great. Or maybe he leaves the car and the music's still going. And she comes out and she goes, oh, I love this song. Whatever. That's fine. But the full on dancing and like the jiving of this guy is so bizarre. <laughs> and I just, I'm like, what is going on? On. What is this white nonsense? <laughs> that is exactly <laughs> it. That is good. I need that on a t-shirt. And while I do enjoy some of what that scene represents, mm-hmm. the going for ice cream bit is just kind of unnecessary. Yeah. Other than to get them out of the house for five seconds. It's just, 
Yeah, it's just stupid. I feel like everything that happens outside of the main conversation between the four of them Mm -hmm. just loses the impact. Well, it feels like they added that stuff because they were worried about writing a stage play. I know. Of a bunch of people in one room and or in one bit of the house where they only go between the study, the living room, and her bedroom. But see, a year before, Mike Nichols did Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And it's fucking incredible. Yeah, and it's, it's pretty good. And while they do move locations, it's still insanely tight and crazy. And that's and okay. And claustrophobic. And in this case, I kind of just wanted them to stay pat. Well, and three of their leads are amazing actors who could have handled all of that. I know. I know. So, missed opportunity. Let's move on to our director. Okay. Stanley Kramer. I feel like I should know this name. He is a big deal. Okay. Before this film, he directed The Defiant Ones with Sidney Poitier, Inherit the Wind, Judgment at Nuremberg, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, and Ship of Fools. This movie is mostly Kramer's brainchild. He was actually one of the most outspoken liberal directors in Hollywood at the time. Good on you. I mean, the Defiant Ones came in 1959, well before this, and the whole thing is it's a white and black prisoner racing for their lives out of a southern prison. Yeah. And they're, I think they're chained together, so they have to work oh, yeah, together they have to, to work survive. together to get out. So, I mean, it, it is totally in his wheelhouse to be like, we are going to go directly after the issue here. Well, good for him. And I'm not going to shy away from it. I mean, like, I don't know if he's like a legit good guy, but like your your mission is sound, at least on this part. I mean, the timeliness of this movie is probably the most important part of it. Oh, for sure. That's what really gives it the strong impact that we get, especially at the end of the film. Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, people were pointing to this movie be like, if you want to understand what is at stake, go see this. Like you want to you want to understand the like heart argument of this case? Go watch this movie. It'll explain it to you, and it'll explain it from about every angle you can possibly have it. I think the most shocking thing in the whole movie is when Sidney Poitier's character starts to have the argument with his own father. I can understand Hollywood making this, you know, all these sorts of cases over here, but to have a black family confront that issue to itself on screen seems mind-blowing for 1967. Well, you have his parents who aren't super happy about it. You have the maid saying he needs to know his place. He got higher than he should be allowed to go. Like, that was also a sentiment. I mean, and like, that's just, I mean, they they presented a lot of point of views. They attack it from every conceivable Mm -hmm. angle in the period, Mm -hmm. which some of those outright, you're like, fuck you. But there are some moments where you're like, Oh, well, shit. (laughs) Exactly. Also, I'm just going to say right now, I hate the premise of this movie to begin with because I would object to this marriage, not because of any racial issues, but because you've known each other a fucking week. Yeah, this is this is a (laughs) Disney timeline. (laughs) I know it's done to accelerate the intensity of this argument, but like it is fucking nuts. This is unnecessary. (laughs) Which is why after a while... I felt I enjoyed this movie better when I wasn't treating it as realistic mm-hmm. and more as this sort of stepping outside political argument type thing, where it was almost like an instructional film, but just done with really fucking good actors. 
I can see that. If you kind of take yourself out of the emotions of it Mm -hmm. in the right moments, because there's some moments where you want to get swept away by it, you really can get more because what you're seeing is the mechanics of of how this is working out and how everybody's reacting to it. Anything more on Stanley Kramer? Um, I think he did a good job. Um, I... I questioned some of the camera choices. Yeah, but again, it was like, it was 1967. Like, they're doing some weird over cranking editing. Yeah, there was some like, sh- like when they go from like tight to wide, where I was like, oh, it's 1967. That's a weird dolly move. Well, and I really wish they had just found a nice fucking house in the Hollywood Hills to film in instead of a soundstage. Yeah, because whenever they're outside, you're just kind of like, meh. No. It, it looks like garbage. It's like, well, that's a backdrop that's not very high quality. Although we should not have watched it in HD, probably. <laughs> yeah, that was your choice. Well, I didn't know it was going to be able to be done on a soundstage. All right, our cast. Because it's 1967, the men go first. Always. Spencer Tracy as Matt Drayton. Also, I don't believe I've ever seen a Spencer Tracy film. Now, we might have to rectify that because you love Father of the Bride, but I don't know that you've ever seen the original Father of the Bride. I have not seen the original Father of the Bride. (laughs) And I do love Father of the Bride. That movie makes me cry, and I hate it because I don't like feelings. This is his final film role. Mm-hmm. He died 17 days after filming Wrapped on it. Mm. His first film role was in 1930. And the highlights from his career that I could pull were Dante's Inferno, Boy's Town, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Tortilla Flat, 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, Adam's Rib, of course, 1950's Father of the Bride, Bad Day at Blackrock, Desk Set, The Old Man and the Sea, Inherit the Wind, Judgment at Nuremberg, How the West Was Won, and It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. So he had worked with Kramer a bit yep. later on in his career. He had been a long-time alcoholic, so he was suffering health problems from that. Catherine Hepburn drove him back and forth to the set every day because, no surprise here, they had a long-time love affair. They were not married at this point, but for a long time in their younger careers, they had both been lovers. They had been together for like 20 plus years. Of course. And... Like they were just, they were together. So anyway, she drove him back and forth to set until he was too tired to do anything else. And then they would shift the the shooting schedule around so that they could just film with the with the two the, younger the leads. Actors. There were actually two scripts that they worked from, one with Spencer Tracy in it and one without. And they had like, two shooting scripts that they could pivot. I don't know. It seems like it was a, we can pivot between these two ideas at any given moment. Oh, okay. Because so they had to like, if they had to cut him out of a scene altogether. Yeah. It seems like they wrote two scripts okay. just so they could be like, well, if Spencer has to go, we can work around it by filming this instead. Yeah, because that's what you want to do in a film. So well, this is this is our in case our lead dies script. But I get it. But still, the climactic final scene took a week of filming to complete. I believe that. And at the end, number one, the entire crew gave him a standing ovation. No. And number two, when you see Catherine Hepburn crying in that scene, that was not acting. She was truly sobbing hmm. because. She, all she was seeing was the man that she had loved for so long. And he's dying, and this is the last thing he's ever going to do. Yep. Man. Mm-hmm. Fuck. <laughs> what kind of feelings? He's so good in this movie. He really is. He's so natural. Like, I don't feel like he's putting on anything. And, like, when he's frustrated, like, when he makes the phone call, like, 
give me the information about this dude. Like, you can see him being like, fuck, damn it. Like, he, this is the jackpot of doctors. He just happens to be black. Exactly. And, he, and he's, so, um, he's so annoyed by this. And it's such a dad thing. Like, even if you took the race part out of it, like, that's such a dad move of, like, ugh, clearly if my daughter wants to marry him, he's a horrible person. <laughs> like, I don't trust her at all. Like, this is a bad idea. And he's not wrong on several accounts. What's interesting is that he has a very normal dad reaction like I had, which is, fuck this noise. Y'all have known each other a week and you came here to surprise us. And by the end of the night, I have to bless your marriage. Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> I mean, that premise pulls the, the integrity move. Like, if you don't prove this, I'm not going to go through with it. Like, that is that is an integrity move. It is. And what's very interesting through that, though, is that it does expose his prejudice. And it's not a prejudice that is necessarily malevolent, mm -hmm. but is so there. True. Because his entire logic through the movie is... I think he's amazing. He's got these amazing ideas. But I don't think these two have any concept of how hard it's going to be to get through the world. And I can't in my right mind say, go for it. Because I'm afraid that she's going to get hurt. And he's not willing to look past that. That's the most magnificent part is that it's, it's drilling down into the even the emotional feelings you have about this have a ton of weight of prejudice on them. And are you going to confront that or not? And that's such a huge thing to try to deal with in a movie. <laughs> At this time. Um, now. Now to deal with it in a movie. Yeah. I mean, like, we talked even about handle it. this well in Green Book. <laughs> like, we're well, so fucking better about that movie, guys. I know. He's very, very good. And he'd always been that good. But this is, this really is a swan song I'm going to take everything I know about acting and I'm going to give literally everything I have left yep. to try to make this role work. He just kind of sparkles through the whole movie. He does. Next up, Sidney Poitier as John Prentice. I mean, this dude's a fucking legend. He is a legend. I don't really like him. In this movie? No. Interesting. Well, before this, he broke with the movie The Blackboard Jungle in 1955 mm -hmm. and then was in The Defiant Ones, Porgy and Bess, A Raisin in the Sun, Lilies of the Field, and The Greatest Story Ever Told. This year might have been his biggest year as an actor. Yeah. Because not only was he in this, he was also in To Sir With Love and In the Heat of the Night. Damn. Yeah, this was his year. And this was when he created the character of Virgil Tibbs. Okay. Which he would appear in two other films as Virgil Tibbs. Then he, he also did Uptown Saturday Night, Shoot to Kill, Sneakers, and his last major film role was The Jackal. Fucking love Sneakers. <laughs> sneakers is one of like my most favorite movies. I remember seeing that in the theater. Ugh, that movie's awesome. At some point, we should get a better feel for him in Lilies of the Field, because I've seen a good chunk of that movie. Mm -hmm. It's very good. He had already won an Oscar for Lilies of the Field. Mm-hmm. But he was incredibly intimidated by Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy. And he actually preferred when they left the set to perform to high back chairs. <laughs> I, I understand that. Instead of directly opposite them. It's like sometimes you just need to get through something without people actually like looking in your face. If I have to stare at someone in the eyes, I'm just going to start laughing. I'm really bad about that. 
And fun story, he was only 13 and 7 years younger than the actors playing his father and mother, respectively. There's some not great makeup going on with our supposedly older black characters. Yeah, I mean... It's a little, like, really? But I do appreciate that they didn't try to pass him off as super young. Yeah, like, I like how in the script it's like, well, he is, like, 25 years older than her. Not that old. He's 37 and she's 23. He's like 15 years older than her. Still, that's a lot. It is. I mean, love is love, whatever. But in any case, you don't like him. I just, like, he's so stiff. He really is. And, like, I would be fine if he was stiff with the parents around. Totally get that. But he's stiff with her. And I mean, like, she's a horrible actress. That's just a fact. But come on, man. He shines when he has the chance to monologue. Yes, he does. He really does in this movie. I think that's frustrating, too, because Sidney Poitier is sparkling and charming and has a great responsiveness on screen. Yeah. So to see him so stiff in this movie... is a little disappointing. It's disappointing, and it's odd for him, because that's not the kind of actor he usually is. Mm-hmm. I also think it could just be something that he didn't connect with his character as much, because he felt like, well, I have to be super stiff because I'm the complete and utter catch of the century. Hmm. And so I have to have internalized all of this, all of the crap I've had to go through to get to this point. Yeah. He's not bad. No, it's just he's like, whatever. That's fair. Now, Catherine Hepburn as Christina Drayton. The only actress to win four Academy Awards. Only actor. No dudes have done this. Before this... Starts off with Little Women in 1933, Mm -hmm. Mary of Scotland in 1936, Stage Door, Bringing Up Baby, The Philadelphia Story, Woman of the Year, State of the Union, Adam's Rib, The African Queen, 1956's The Rainmaker, Desk Set, Suddenly Last Summer, and Long Day's Journey into Night in 1962. Then after this... She does The Lion in Winter, The Mad Woman of Shio, The Trojan Women, A Delicate Balance, Rooster Cogburn, On Golden Pond, and 1994's Love Affair was her last major film role. I forgot she was in Love Affair. A remake yeah. of a movie she was in in the 40s. Yeah, I saw that one. That was with uh, Annette Benning. Woo! Damn. She's phenomenal. And I am obsessed with her clothing in this movie. <laughs> like, like, her hair's offensive to me because it does nothing for her i know it was of the time whatever but her clothes are amazing (laughs) but she could have been wearing burlap sack and that woman can act her way around in circles around all of those people in that room put together the scene with hillary yeah and the car Mm -hmm. i want you to take that five thousand dollars because i believe it's what you're owed and i want you to get absolutely lost and i'm like yes no and then i love that she goes in and her daughter is a little mouthy and then she goes she gets that from her father's side and i'm just like yes i was like this woman is the shit she throws so much shade it's amazing um i want to be here when i grow up she backed this film using her own salary mm-hmm. as basically collateral because the studio was not convinced that Spencer Tracy would finish this picture. That's fair. (laughs) I mean, it's a reasonable concern. Kramer had to put up the stake, too. They both had to say, I will forfeit my salary if he doesn't finish. She had always claimed 
and stated she never saw the final film mm-hmm. because the memories of Spencer during that movie were too painful no. to revisit. And the sculpture of Spencer Tracy, that little bust that they look at, she actually created that sculpture. Aww. At her estate auction, mm-hmm. it sold for $316,000. Wow. It was the highest price item, even though it was only valued at around three dollars to $5,000. Well, because it has so much meaning. It does. She's a right queen, and it's a freaking shame we haven't seen more of her work. Yeah, we'll be rectifying that later. <laughs> Like, for sure. Now, let's get to the lesser Hepburn. Catherine Houghton as Joey Drayton. Okay, but you said Hepburn. Well, that is because this is her film debut. She is Catherine Hepburn's niece. Mm, Sad for her. (laughs) She really did, like, nothing after this. Minor TV roles and appearances... The big ones I got were Billy Bathgate, 1993's Ethan Frome. She was in Kinsey. She was like a grandma in the last airbender of all movies. Damn. And her most recent role was she's been in a couple episodes of Mr. Mercedes. I mean, she's just such a cartoon character in like not a good way. Because this is supposed to be a serious movie. And it is a serious movie. And every time she opens her mouth, it's just like, oh, let's see you again. She's also the vehicle for like 80 bajillion microaggressions against everyone. Yeah, and I really don't like the way she talks to the maid. Her racism never gets addressed. Correct. She's fine because she's marrying the black guy. She is fetishizing the fact that she's marrying a black guy. Oh, yeah. How amazing am I that I fell in love with a black man? And how cool is it? That, you know, like, this is going to be shocking. I'm doing something amazing. And I That's don't want to discount that there could be actual love there. Mm-hmm. It's her portrayal of it that yeah. feels like it fetishizes it. Yeah. If you had a stronger actress and you had written in some confrontation. Sli- slightly better writing for her, for her character. Right. We need to confront that issue. We've confronted every other possible angle of this scenario. When she finds out that John gave the the edict to the parents is like if you don't agree to this I'm not doing it that should have been an argument between them yes and it should have been like him telling her is like look I need to make sure that you fully understand what you're up against because I know I live with this every day but I don't think you get what you're signing up for and it would make Spencer Tracy's line of for once in your life shut up that was also an amazing line. Land so much better. Yeah. It really would. <laughs> yeah. And it would also, like, when the fact that they treat her like a child so much would have that much more purpose because she is behaving like a child. She is the one missed opportunity of this yes. movie. Cecil Kellaway as Monsignor Ryan. I mean, he's a drunk priest, so. My favorite part about him is that he just wants to stick it to Drayton. He's like, I have been waiting, waiting for a moment like this to just hold it over your head. Mm -hmm. Because this is the funniest fucking thing in the world. You talk a big game, my friend. But now you have to actually put your money where your mouth is. Yeah, I do love that shit. He was in a few big things. He was in the original Postman Always Rings twice. He was in Harvey, 1939's Wuthering Heights. Ooh. I'm sorry. He's a longtime character actor. Okay. 
Roy Glenn as Mr. Prentice. No thoughts. His dumbfounded look when they meet her is the best because they hold for so long. I was like, this is amazing. This this is great. Like, mom, dad, do you have anything to say? And mom's just like, well, it's charming to meet you. And his jaw is still just, uh, uh, uh. Yeah, it's it's great. His brain is broken. It's like, I don't know how to deal with this. Uh, how do I process this? He was also a longtime character actor. Did A Raisin in the Sun, Poor Game Best, and the, the original Sound on the Fury in 1959. Mm-hmm. Also was in After This, Hang em High and I Love You, Alice B. Toklas. Escape from the Planet of the Apes was his last film. Okay. Before he passed away in 1971. Mm. Bea Richards as Mrs. Prentice. Okay. I wish she was a little more charismatic. To match Catherine Hepburn's character just a little bit more. Just a little bit. I don't know. I really like her opposition match to them. Part of it is I think she's playing it as very intimidated by being in this type of space. Mm -hmm. But that speech she gets with Matt Drayton is one of the best scenes in the whole freaking movie. When she just talks about, do men just forget what love is like? Do they just completely forget that? how it feels to fall in love for the first time Mm -hmm. and it's just like damn damn that is one aspect of this that i would not think was coming to be talked about but is so important to the entire conversation before this she was in the miracle worker in 1962 and also had a prominent role this same year in in the heat of the night Mm -hmm. after this was in the great white hope mahogany drugstore cowboy beloved in 1998 and lots and lots of television roles and finally, of our main actors, I have to mention Isabel Sanford as Tilly. The housekeeper. Our maid. The maid, yeah. This is her film debut. Okay. So it could explain a little bit of sometimes the unevenness I felt from her. Mm-hmm. But, you know, she's also, I mean. She's not written very well either. She's not, but she is a fucking spitfire and is selling every scene she's in. She's She's got some good zingers in there. Now, you might actually know Isabel Sanford. Okay. Because she played a woman named Louise Jefferson. Oh, okay. On All in the Family, and All then, right. of course, The Jeffersons. So moving on up. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, mean, I didn't watch those too much. They weren't, when they were syndicated, it was during, was it during my uh, TV viewing times that often. I looked at all of her other roles just to be like, okay, was there any? I was like, nope. That is, I mean, she did tons of guest starring appearances. But that's, that's her claim to fame. But like, that's a good one. I mean, all in the that, family. I mean, is amazing. The Jeffersons. So, yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. All right. There was nothing else that was big, huge, trivia type stuff, which means we are going straight to awards. Awards. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's why we're doing this. So this movie was nominated for 10 Academy Awards. Shit. That's, that's a lot. At the 40th Academy Awards in 1968, kind of cool, kind of wow. cool. This year was so fucking loaded with great movies, mm-hmm. a bunch of which I know you haven't seen. Mm-hmm. I feel like we could do like 1967 as its own thing. Probably. <laughs> so I'm just going to roll through and I'll, I'll note who actually won here because it did win two awards. Okay. But I won't reveal the second one. We know the first one why we're here. Yes. It's Catherine Hepburn. For Best Actor, Spencer Tracy was nominated, okay. posthumously. Okay. Also nominated that year, Warren Beatty for Bonnie and Clyde, Paul Newman for Cool Hand Luke, oh, nice. and Dustin Hoffman for The Graduate. Fuck! Yes, that year. And the winner that year was Rod Steiger for In the Heat of the Night. 
also stars in Uploje. Playing Gillespie, the white police captain of the southern town. It's always the white man. Well, he's supposed to be pretty good in that movie, too, so don't get me wrong. No, I'm just, I'm on a roll. I'm mad. (laughs) <laughs> so I'm shitting on all of them. Also, Sidney Poitier not nominated in any of these categories this year. That's kind of fucked up. Uh, there were some other good performances. I get it. Actor get in a it. supporting role. Cecil Kellaway as Monsignor Ryan was nominated. Also, John Cassavetes for The Dirty Dozen. Michael J. Pollard nominated for Bonnie and Clyde. Gene Hackman in one of his very first film roles nominated for Bonnie and Clyde. And George Kennedy won that year for Cool Hand Luke. Of course, Catherine Hepburn won Best Actress that year, up against Faye Dunaway in Bonnie and Clyde, Anne Bancroft in The Graduate, Audrey Hepburn in Wait Until Dark, oh, yeah. and I Dame Edith that. Evans as in The Whisperers, which I've never heard of. That's a good year. That That is a... That's some stiff competition. And I love Catherine Hepburn in this movie. Don't get me wrong. I could argue Anne Bancroft winning that award. Mrs. Robinson is... An incredible performance. Oh, for sure. <laughs> like, like, absolutely. And Audrey Hepburn, who I'm iffy on some of the time. And Wait Until Dark isn't the greatest movie in the world, but her She's performance good in Wait Until Dark. is really good as a blind person. Fun fact, did that show in college. Mm-hmm. And that's when I saw the movie. Mm-hmm. So did I. Actress in a supporting role. Bea Richards was nominated. Mrs. Prentice. The winner that year was Estelle Parsons for Bonnie and Clyde. Okay. Also nominated were Mildred Natwick for Barefoot in the Park. Mm-hmm. Catherine Ross for The Graduate. Okay. She's also yeah, great. She's, she's good in that movie. And Carol Channing for Thoroughly Modern Millie. <gasps> that movie's so good. <laughs> I love Thoroughly Modern Millie. Are you starting to see why 1967's a big fucking deal? God damn it. All right. Art Direction. Okay. It was nominated. It was up against The Taming of the Shrew, Thoroughly Modern Millie, Dr. Doolittle, and the winner that year, Camelot. Oh, yes. It was nominated for Best Picture. In the Heat of the Night won Best Picture that year. Okay. And nominated alongside The Graduate, Dr. Doolittle, and Bonnie and Clyde. That's a good slate. Yeah, this may be this may be our selection for our an Oscar year. Just I, it's, like, yeah. And there's a bunch that I've seen. I know there's a cup a lot of the musical stuff you've seen. True. Let's get to directing here. Arthur Penn for Bonnie and Clyde. Stanley Kramer for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Richard Brooks for In Cold Blood. Norman Jewison for In the Heat of the Night. And the winner that year, Mike Nichols for The Graduate. Which makes a ton of sense for that winning that award, Mm -hmm. as opposed to the other stuff going to everybody else. Mm. It really is orchestrated so perfectly by Mike Nichols. Hmm. Now, here's the one that I roll my eyes at. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner was nominated for film editing. Yeah, no. (laughs) It was up against Beach Red, Dr. Doolittle, and The Dirty Dozen, but the winner was In the Heat of the Night. For original song score or adaptation score for music... Because we used to do that, I guess. Yeah, no, yeah, we did. Dr. Doolittle, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Thoroughly Modern Millie, and Valley of the Dolls by John Williams. Oh, yeah. This is early, early John, John Williams. Williams. The winner that year was Camelot. Yeah. And then finally, for original screenplay, mm-hmm. the nominees were Bonnie and Clyde, Divorce American Style, La Guerre est finie. La Guerre est finie. The war is over. Two for the Road, 
And the winner, guess who's coming to dinner? Yeah, that wins. I get it. The strong scripts were actually in the adapted screenplay group over there. That makes sense, too. The adapted screenplays were way better that year. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know. Bonnie and Clyde's real good. But I've, that, I've never seen it. Honestly, I think it's better because of the visuals and the style than it is the, the script itself, per mm-hmm. se. Yeah, 1967 might have to be the one where we just <laughs> dive good. through. Hey, so yeah, we are one of the things we want to do with this upcoming season is we've got like some grab bag of stuff, but we also want to pick a year of the Oscars that is rife with just classic films that we have not seen and go through it so we can have a more educated like, yes, this deserved to win, or no, it should have been this, because we love being able to do that. So right now, I guess we're going with 1967, but if you have a year that you think we want more on the 50s and 60s timeline, if you can think of one that is just really contentious, throw us your suggestions. All right. It's time for ratings. Okay. Let's go with Matt Drayton Busts, just for the, just for the fun of it. Matt just Drayton Busts. Little, little, little tiny bust. I'm going to give this movie a three. I'm going to say it's a three with a big, huge exclamation point next to it that mm-hmm. you should go watch it. You really should because it means a whole lot and it has a lot of really great things to say and grapple mm-hmm. with. It is a movie that you should wrestle with a little bit. Mm-hmm. It should make you uncomfortable, like in a good way. It, it's just so dated mm-hmm. and it's got some flaws to it in just how it's structured as a movie. That it's not necessarily like the greatest thing I'd ever see. It's not a movie I'm ever going to watch again. Like, to be honest, there might be some scenes that I would love to go see again. Like, you know, when she's telling off Hillary or Spencer Tracy's final monologue. Yeah. But as a movie itself, it's not something I kind of feel like I need to sit through. I do know that they remade this as a stupid ass comedy with reversing all of the race elements and having Ashton Kutcher be the lead in 2005. Just. No, but I'm going to pretend that didn't happen. I think logistically you could remake this movie and tighten up that script or you could remake it as a play in which everybody was at a single room, single home table. Yeah, and it would work so well. Oh, yeah, for sure. The, no, no, I fully agree on that. The intimacy and tension would just play so perfectly. Mm-hmm. Going with four. Okay. Because that's just that was my first instinct. I'm trying to be a little more like what's my first like gut reaction like? go with that a little bit more that's cool. uh, i agree i agree with you it th- you need to see this movie if you Absolutely. haven't if you haven't seen it you should see it it's very important for a lot of reasons also just a palate cleanser to feeling horrible about the green book <laughs> um i push it i push it over to the four because of katherine hepburn and spencer tracy they're amazing they are and like i i like that this movie has to like kind of put some shit in your face it's like you gotta deal with some of this like this is important we still deal with this in many many ways and we need to get over this bullshit (laughs) just knocked it a little bit because i didn't like the writing of the daughter and she's a really important character it's that missed opportunity yeah and like that's the big bummer for me like that's the part that and the dancing delivery boy really I'm going to find a YouTube clip of this. Really hurt the film for it's me. It's so fucking bizarre. It, it really is. But I can I can I can still say that it's a 4. Yeah. And I'm ashamed of myself from having not seen a Katherine Hepburn movie until now. We'll fix it. But we're we're going to be seeing some more cuz yes. anybody with four performance Oscars deserves a lot of recognition. 
it deserves some viewing for sure. For a woman who at one point was declared Hollywood box office poison. Yeah, they can go fuck themselves. <laughs> because she wasn't pretty enough. Yeah, she's gorgeous. Exactly. Like, that woman's gorgeous. I know. Fuck all those guys. But, but don't. Don't fuck any of those guys. <laughs> That's it for Oscar movies, right? No, we've got one more. Oh. Actually, two, because we're going to have a very special movie on our Patreon. It's exclusive to our $2 and up tier Patreon members. So if you want to become a member and get some extra movies or maybe get all of our coverage of The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, go ahead on over to patreon.com slash Macintosh and Mod and sign up for the $2 and up tier. Which, speaking of Patreon, we have two new Patreon members that we need to say hey to. We've got Jimmy from Angry Amp Studios and we've got Laura. Thank you guys so much for becoming Patreon members. We love you. Thank you so much. Next week, we're going to do Moonstruck. Snap out of it. Yeah. That's literally the only thing about that movie I know. That is on the, like, the AFI 100 list of like best catchphrases from a movie. And it's literally the scene they talk about anytime they show. It's a great scene. That movie. <laughs> but yeah, Cher, Nicolas Cage. I have literally only seen this movie one time. But it has stuck in my head so much. I cannot see Cher and not think of my grandmother. <laughs> we'll talk about that more on our next episode. All right. Until next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Facebook.